Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. different theme this week as we begin episode 250 of Hollywood and Levine. Welcome on in. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, looking to do something a little bit different uh, on this uh, milestone, episode 250. And so what I thought I would do is a deep dive into the greatest sitcom in history, I love Lucy. And uh, look, what can you say uh, about a series that is still as popular today as it was over 70 years ago? In fact, uh, this year, 2021, is the 70th anniversary of I Love Lucy. So that's what we're going to talk about in uh, this particular episode. And hopefully I have a couple of facts and things about the show that uh, you've never heard before. And uh, like I said, it's it's such an iconic show. And if any show deserves an entire episode, it is certainly I Love Lucy. Before we start that, though, I do want to thank so many of you who uh, heeded my request last week to uh, email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And uh, tell me uh, who you are and where you're from and how you found out about the podcast, etc. I really do appreciate it. And it's not too late if you haven't, uh, please you know, just, uh, you know, drop me a line, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, who you are, uh, a little bit about your age, what you like about the podcast, that type of thing. Um, It really does help me get a sense of just who is out there. All right, let's get into it here. I love Lucy. Now, uh, you know, just doing a little housekeeping to start off. It began... October 15th, 1951, so uh, really 70 years last month, 
and it ended May 6, 1957. At least a half hour did. Then they did these hour specials. We're just talking about the uh, the half hour I Love Lucy. They made 180 episodes. So when you figure that goes into syndication and they'll do five a week, that means they go 36 weeks before having to repeat. Now, during its run on CBS, and it was on CBS, uh, every Monday night from 9 to 9.30, and that was its time slot, and unlike a lot of shows, it never changed time slots throughout that time. It was the most watched show in four of its six seasons, including the last season. And that's kind of unusual because uh, a show will be popular and it will crest and then eventually, you know, it starts to fade a little bit and eventually you take it off the air. Not this show. It was number one when it ended. And, of course, it's also seen internationally. Now, they figure over three billion people have watched the show in the last 70 years. Let's think about that. Three billion people. And CBS, back in 2013, ran a colorized version of a couple of episodes. That got eight million people. Now, CBS, if they get a million people to watch a show, that's a big deal. They got eight million people to watch a show at the time was 65 years old. Now, it is notable for many reasons, and it was also very innovative. It was the first scripted show to be shot on 35-millimeter film in front of a studio audience. So let's back up a little bit and give you some of the history and uh, tell you a little bit about Lucy and Desi and their background. So Lucille Ball was a model in New York, and she came to Hollywood to be in the movies. And she had some success, but basically did a lot of B-movies. In fact, she became known as the Queen of the Bees, and she developed a reputation for physical comedy. And here's an interesting thing. She also dyed her hair red to complement the beginning of Technicolor. She was really a blonde, but she dyed her hair bright, bright red. In 1940, she met Desi Arnaz. Now, Desi Arnaz at the time was a Cuban band leader, and he had a show in New York work in the clubs that was very, very popular. And they decided to bring him out to Hollywood and basically make a movie of it and kind of build a story around the act. And Lucy was hired to be his love interest. Well, needless to say, chemistry worked. There was a hot and heavy courtship, and eventually they were married. Now it's during World War II, and Lucy is still doing B-movies, and she also does a few radio shows during that time, and that gets the attention of CBS. Now, 1948, she was enlisted to star in a radio sitcom, and they offered her a choice of two. One was called My Favorite Husband, and the other was called Our Miss Brooks. 
Armist Brooks is a show about a teacher in a high school. And My Favorite Husband was about uh, a woman married to a guy with another couple that was uh, their neighbors. Sounds sort of familiar. Well, she picked My Favorite Husband, and Eve Arden got the part in Armist Brooks. And uh, so in this particular show, My Favorite Husband, Lucy played a frustrated housewife, but of a banker. And uh, the actor who played it originally was Lee Bowen, and then later Richard Denning took over as, uh, as her husband. Again, not Desi. Now, here's one of the interesting tie-ins between the radio and the television show. It was produced by a gentleman named Jess Oppenheimer, who also wrote it, along with a writing team of Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll Jr. Now, they all would go on to be the guiding force of I Love Lucy. And it's also interesting to note that Madeline Pugh was one of the first women comedy writers. Okay, so the radio show is a very big hit. And she also did a couple of movies along the way with Bob Hope. And Bob Hope was a major star, so the movies were very successful. And uh, in terms of Lucy, her star was rising. Now you move forward to 1950. Television is beginning, and CBS asked Lucy to take My Favorite Husband to TV along with Richard Denning. Now, she saw this as a great opportunity to work with her husband, Desi Arnaz. Well, needless to say, CBS resisted because he was Cuban. I find it very interesting that today, you know, with all the diversity and inclusion that uh, nowadays uh, Desi Arnaz would get the job, but Richard Denning could not. Anyway, at the time... Again, 1950, they felt that uh, America would not accept a marriage between an American girl and a Cuban man. Now, I should mention that this is also the same network that said America would not accept uh, a show about New York or Jews or men wearing mustaches. So, you know, that was CBS. Well, to prove CBS wrong... The uh, couple decided to develop a vaudeville act written by Carolyn Pugh that they performed at uh, historic Ritz Theater in New York with Arnez's orchestra. Now, the act was a big hit, and it convinced the CBS uh, executives to uh, go along with uh, Desi Arnez playing her husband. Now, it also uh, is worth mentioning that at the time... NBC and ABC showed interest, and they were both saying, yeah, we'll do it with Desi Arnaz. And I I think that utzed CBS a little bit to finally go along with it. So a pilot was ordered in Hollywood, and now we're in March of 1951, and it coincided with Lucy's first pregnancy, and this would be Lucy, Lucy Arnaz. And uh, it also coincided with the end of the radio show. They decided to change the title for the TV version and call it I Love Lucy. And they needed a sponsor. They got Philip Morris. Now, back in those days, the sponsors basically ran the network. Sponsors had 
a tremendous amount of power. They really guided these shows. So Philip Morris was their sponsor. Okay, but it had two demands, okay? Number one, they wanted the show to be weekly, not bi-weekly. And this was something they did in the early days of television where uh, a show would be on once every other week, that there would be two shows that would just alternate uh, between them. Uh, Burns and Allen was one. The Jack Benny show was another. Uh, They were not on every week. They were on every other week. Well, Philip Morris said, no, we want you on every week. And that was kind of a problem for Lucy because it meant, well, that was pretty much the end of her movie career because there's 39 episodes a year. And the other thing is that Philip Morris wanted the show shot in New York. And here's why. Most shows were shot in New York back in the early 50s. And they would be performed live for the East Coast. And then there would be kinescopes of them shown to the West Coast. Now, you may have heard the term kinescope. Exactly what is it? Basically, this is how, uh, God, how primitive it was. They would take a 35-millimeter camera or a 16-millimeter camera and just point it at a television monitor (laughs) and film that, and then they would process it. And then later on and sometimes a week later, the show would be shown on the West Coast, and it looked like crap on the West Coast. Well, they didn't want to move to New York. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to stay in Los Angeles. And so what they wanted to do was do the show on film. Now, this was expensive, and uh, CBS balked, and Philip Morris balked. And why they finally gave in was that Lucy and Desi offered to take a $1,000 a week pay cut. But... Here's what they wanted in exchange. And CBS was more than happy to do it. Ball and Arnez demanded and were given 80% ownership of the I Love Lucy films. And the other 20% went to Oppenheimer and, bless his soul, he gave 5% to Pew and 5% to Carol. Now, here's why that is so significant. Back in the 50s, there were no residuals. Residuals didn't begin until the 60s. So for all the brilliance and all of the work that these writers did, they made nothing on the syndication these last 70 years. Now, Pew and Carroll, at least got a piece, but later on, another pair of writers joined them, Bob Weisskopf and Bob Schiller, and they did not participate at all in the, uh, you know, in the profits of the show. So, uh, so they were able to work that out, okay? But 
shooting the show on film presented a number of problems. Number one was unions. Because if you're going to shoot a show on film, then basically you're dealing with all of the movie unions as opposed to a show on tape or kinescope or live in which there were unions involved in TV production. So they had to use all of the movie people. And so uh, Desi, who had like a company that basically booked his band, said, all right, I'll just produce the whole thing. And they started a company called Desi Lou, which, of course, is a combination of Desi and Lucy. And so he basically owned this show and produced this show. Now, Lucy loved the idea of performing in front of an audience because she did this on the radio show and she loved feasting off of the energy of the live audience. But uh, uh, how are you going to do that? Most of the shows back then were all single camera, basically filmed like a movie. And part of the problem was that a lot of these sound stages, you know, they had fire laws and you couldn't bring in an audience into one of these sound stages. So Desi had to do a couple of things. Number one, he had to find a stage that was large enough uh, that it could accommodate a, a studio audience. And there was a struggling studio called General Services Studio located on Las Palmas Avenue. Uh, and they said, sure, come over here and you can do it. They had these two cavernous studios, and they accommodated. They put in bleachers and set things up so that you could have a studio audience. So that was number one. Uh, But then there was the other aspect of it, and that is shooting three cameras at once. Now, everybody believes that Desi Arnaz invented three-camera comedy. And to this day, although now it's four cameras, inflation, I guess, uh, (laughs) uh, when you shoot a show in front of a live studio audience, like we did at Cheers, like they did on the Dick Van Dyke show, like they did on Friends, uh, many, many shows use this format down through the years. Um, That way an audience can be basically watching a play and it is being filmed and the cameras are moving across the stage and going to different shots uh, as the action unfolds. But, like I said, people think that uh, that Desi invented this format. He actually didn't. He was the first to use it in a situation comedy. But the idea was really pioneered by a guy named Jerry Fairbanks, and he had used it on a live anthology series, The Silver Theater, and also on the game show, Truth or Consequences, as well as, are you ready? Amos and Andy. Okay, but it's a little bit different with Amos and Andy because they they shot it multi-camera, but they did not have an audience. And what they did on that show is they would bring in an audience later to watch 
the final film version, and then they would record their laughter and uh, just overlap that with the soundtrack. But they didn't have an actual audience in the soundstage while they were filming. Uh, They did on I Love Lucy. Uh, When they shot I Love Lucy, by the way, they rarely did retakes. Even mistakes sometimes would make their way into the final product. And so uh, an episode of I Love Lucy could take an hour. The audience was in and out in one hour. Remember a few weeks ago when I had Bob Perlow on and we were talking uh, about Friends and how Friends would start shooting at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and it would end at 2 o'clock in the morning? (laughs) Compare that with one hour to film an entire episode of I Love Lucy stunts and everything else. Now, another problem that they faced was, again, they're just, uh, you know, being pioneers here, uh, kind of inventing this as they go along, is how do you get the look of the show to be such that no matter where they were on the set and where the cameras were, that you had decent lighting, that it all looked really good, that it wasn't in shadow at one point and too bright in another. So they needed a really good uh, cinematographer. The guy they hired was named Carl Frund. I hope I pronounced that correctly, F-R-E-U-N-D. Now, he had worked on such films as Metropolis in 1927 and Dracula, in 1931, you know, the one with Lon Chaney? Yeah, well, he was the cinematographer on that. <laughs> He's also the cinematographer on I Love Lucy. And as a director, in 1932, he directed The Mummy. Well, he was instrumental in finding a way to uniformly light the set so that you were able to, to shoot it. Now a word about the theme song. Now, it was originally written by a two-time Oscar nominee, don't you know, named Elliot Daniel, and lyrics were later written by five-time Oscar nominee, Harold Adamson, and Desi actually sings this once in a 1953 episode called Lucy's Last Birthday. Along with the opening song came the opening titles, And the ones that you have seen your whole life, those were not the opening titles that were seen originally on the show. Their original opening and commercial bumpers were animated caricatures of Lucy and Desi, and they were designed and animated by a a gentleman who later went on to do the Flintstones, and it was produced under a contract Uh, by producer William Hanna. If that name sounds a little familiar, it's because he later went on with Joseph Barbera to form Hanna-Barbera Productions. Well, they did the 
the opening titles. But if you look at them, cigarettes were incorporated into them, so there was no way that you could use them when they're in syndication. There have been a a number of different titles, but uh, one that was used for several years shows like this giant pack of Philip Morris cigarettes and Lucy and Desi rappelling off the sides of them. Yeah, you can't really use that. Uh, The one that you saw all those years in syndication and still see uh, were made when CBS decided to do a syndicated version and put it on every day uh, in the daytime back in uh, 1959. And it ran on CBS from 1959 to 1967 in the daytime. And after 1967, it went to other independent stations. And that's why you see them today. Uh, The audience laughter was real, getting back to the multi-camera aspect of it. In fact, Lucy's mom, Dee Dee, had this very distinctive, "Uh uh-oh, that you'll sometimes hear, and you'll also sometimes hear Desi laughing in a scene that he wasn't in. You know, that, uh, ho, 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 that, that, uh, ho, Lucy uh, laugh of his. Uh, They later recorded these laughs to use as canned laughter on other shows, and they are still using those tracks today. So, in other words there is a very good chance that everybody who is laughing on those tracks is now dead. Isn't that bizarre? Uh, But the laughter on the actual I Love Lucy shows were real. 1953, they moved over to Coanga, and there they renamed the studios Desilu Studios. They also bought RKO Pictures at the corner of Melrose and Gower in what is now part of Paramount. It was Paramount then, but uh, at the time, they kind of cordoned off a, a section. Their marriage ended in 1960. Think about Desi Arnaz. He was a wonderful businessman, but he was a big womanizer, constantly. And uh, it got to her after a while, 1960, They finally called it quits. And two years later, Lucy bought out Desi's share of Desi Lou, and she became the sole owner. And then she sold it to Gulf and Western in 1967 for $17 million. And to put that into some perspective, in today's dollars, it's as if she sold it for $132 million. And later, the Desilu Coanga Complex became known as Renmar. And uh, among the shows that were filmed there were The Golden Girls, uh, a lot of the Whit Thomas shows, and uh, a lot of the David Kelly shows before he got his own studio in Redondo Beach. Shows like The Practice and Ally McBeal were filmed there. Now, I worked on that lot briefly I was a consultant on a Whit Thomas show called Mama's Boy with Nancy Walker and Bruce Weitz. And ironically, two of the writers on that show were Bob Schiller and Bob Weisskopf. Those were the two writers that were also hired to do I Love Lucy. 
And so it was so cool to actually be on the I Love Lucy lot with I Love Lucy writers. And they walked me around and they showed me where the stage was and where their offices were. Uh, it was it was a very cool experience. I asked them, I said, so when you would have table readings, uh, you know, did they just love you guys? And he said, no, no. They always had notes. Uh, they had a ton of notes. Uh, no, no. They, they never really got the love. Uh, I will say this. Again, uh, Schiller and Weisskopf were telling me the story about what a cool guy Desi was that Desi called them one Friday and said, look, I have to go and uh, do a roast for somebody, uh, for some sponsor, blah, 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 on Sunday night. Could you guys come over tomorrow and help me write it? And they loved Desi, and they said, sure. And they went over to his house, and they spent the day working on this material, and Desi thanked them, and they went home. And the next morning brand new Cadillacs arrived at each of their ha- homes. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving up uh, a few hours of your time to come up with some jokes. Uh, Desi bought them both brand new Cadillacs. You love working for that guy. I should talk a little bit about uh, their neighbors, the Mertzes. And the name... Uh, is from a doctor in Indianapolis that Madeline Pugh knew as a child. And in the radio show, there was The Couple Next Door, and they were played by Gail Gordon and B. Benaderet. Gail Gordon is the guy who, on later Lucy shows, and, oh, God, you've seen him in a million things, he was the one who always has this voice. Miss Carmichael, would you please come in here a moment? Uh, he was that guy. And B. Benaderet had been in many, many series, uh, including Petticoat Junction, and she was the original voice of Betty Rubble of the Flintstones. So they were the neighbors, and um, when they decided to transfer to television, both were unavailable for the TV show. He was on Armis Brooks. He plays the principal, and uh, she was on Burns and Allen. She was the neighbor on Burns and Allen. So they had to find two new actors. And for Fred, Lucy wanted an actor named James Gleason, but apparently he was too expensive. And Bill Frawley, at the time, he was 64 years old. He was a vaudeville and character actor. And he called Lucy personally and asked if there was any roles for him. And he had uh, tried out earlier that year. This is how he was available, because he had tried out earlier that year to be an announcer for the New York Yankees, to be a play-by-play guy for the New York Yankees. And he didn't get the job. A guy named Art Gleason did get the job. And uh, you figure, how bizarre would that be for an actor to be a a play-by-play guy? A couple of years later, one of the announcers for the New York Yankees was Joey Brown. And Joey Brown had like this huge mouth. You've seen him in a lot of old movies. If you saw Some Like It Hot, he was the guy at the very end 
who has maybe the most famous closing line in any movie, Nobody's Perfect. That was Joey Brown. And for a couple of years, he was a play-by-play guy for the New York Yankees. Uh, So there is uh, time for me yet to become a sitcom star. Well, the problem with uh, William Frawley was that he drank. So Desi made him sign a contract that basically said if ever he was inebriated on the set, he would be fired. And for the entire run of the show, he was completely sober. That said, the only time in my life that I ever actually saw William Frawley in person, it was on a weekend. It was on a Sunday evening at a restaurant that's like right around the corner from uh, Paramount called Nicodell's. He was smashed. <laughs> he, he was absolutely smashed. And I'm like, you know, six years old. I'm like, oh, my God, there he is. There's Fred Mertz. Um, I, was, I was completely starstruck. Now, for Ethel, uh, Lucy wanted uh, an actress named Mary Wicks, another actress you've seen her in a thousand things uh, in her day. She was offered the job, but she declined because she and Lucy were good friends and she worried that uh, working together might strain the friendship. I wonder if in later years she thought to herself, what a stupid fucking move that was on my part. Then they considered another actress named Barbara Pepper, but she too had a drinking problem. And Mark Daniels, who was the director at the time, suggested Vivian Vance. Now, at the time, she was kind of unknown on the West Coast, but she had been a Broadway actress for 20 years. And she was in a play, coincidentally, in La Jolla, down near the San Diego area. And Desi and Jess Oppenheimer went to see the play, and they just, like, hired her on the spot. She was a little reluctant at first, and Daniels had to convince her to take the gig. You know, she was afraid of giving up Broadway. Again, it turned out to be a pretty good move for her. Lucy, however, had some misgivings about hiring Vivian Vance, who was younger and far more attractive than the concept of Ethel, uh, as as written, who's kind of an older, somewhat homely, dowdy woman. And Vivian is really just two years older than Lucille Ball. And, um, and she's like 24 years younger than Bill Frawley. Now, I know you love Lucy, and I love Lucy too, but uh, an actress is an actress. Uh, One of her problems with Vivian Vance was that she was attractive. And Lucy subscribed to the Hollywood adage at the time that there can be only one pretty woman on the set. And, of course, Lucy being the star of the show was it. So they had to dress Vivian very frumpy. Now, you would think, and there's uh, rumors to this effect, that Lucy and Vivian did not get along. That's actually not true. Yeah, at first things were a little frosty, but uh, eventually they became very, very good friends. In fact, when Lucy did her later series, Vivian was on that. And I got a chance to see Vivian Vance. I happened to be in the studio audience of a filming of Rhoda 
in which she was the guest star. And, uh, God, she came out and the place went absolute batshit. And she was fantastic. It was like a master class in acting. She just nailed every single joke. It was just such a pleasure and an honor to see Vivian Vance actually work. I see her working on a sitcom. I see Bill Frawley uh, drunk on his ass. So as I said, Lucy and Viv were good friends. I call her Viv now. But Vivian Vance and Bill Frawley hated each other. They just hated each other from day one until the very end. The biggest episode of I Love Lucy was in season two. In season two, Lucy was pregnant with her second child, and they decided to work it into the show. And this is, of course, a a famous story that CBS wouldn't let them say the word pregnant. Today on CBS, you can say vagina on kids' shows, but back then, uh, you know, she had to be in a motherly way or expecting... Also, Philip Morris didn't want her smoking in those episodes either, which is actually a good idea to not smoke when you're pregnant. So to add to the buildup of the actual birth of the baby, what they did is they pre-shot the episode where Lucy gives birth and they aired it on the night that she actually did give birth in real life. It was a planned C-section. That was January 19th, 1953. 71.7% of all viewers were watching that show. 44 million people. But think about it. 44 million people is 71.7% back in 1953. How many fewer people there were in the population back then than now. And the overall rating for the 1952 season, not just one episode with, you know, certainly a a stunt episode. No, the entire season, 67.3 share. Compare that with today, where a show on CBS gets a one share. 67.3. Three. And by the way, they didn't know in real life that uh, it was going to be a boy. And Jess Oppenheimer made an executive decision that the baby on the show would be a boy. And they lucked out. It was. It was Desi Jr. And uh, Oppenheimer is quoted as saying that he is the greatest writer in the world. Now, one thing that they did invent on I Love Lucy is reruns. Because back in those days, like I said, there'd be 39 episodes, and what they would traditionally do is show 39 episodes, and then they would have a a summer fill-in show. But they decided to pre-film, like the birth show and a couple of others before it, And uh, there was some time where Lucy needed to be off her feet. So what they decided to do, since the show was on film, 
and was available was they said, let's just re-show some of the best episodes from season one and slot those in instead. And that's what they did. And we have reruns as a thanks to I Love Lucy. Here's some interesting Emmy facts. You would think that I Love Lucy would win every year. No. Actually, they did win several years, but they didn't win every year. 1955, it lost the Best Comedy Award to uh, the Danny Thomas show. You figure, well, okay, Lucy is going to win every year as Best Comedic Actress. No, she won uh, sometimes, but she lost to Eve Arden. Nanette Fabre and <laughs> comedy giant Loretta Young beat her out. They lost for the best writing to the George Goebel show and to the Phil Silvers Bilko show. Okay, that one I'll give them. That, that one I'll give them. And you, you figure, because so many people figured, well, the brilliance of that show is not the writing, it's Lucy doing all of these stunts. You can sort of figure why it didn't get the uh, the love that it really deserved. Now, the directors, Mark Daniels, as I mentioned, started out, and then William Asher uh, handled the directing for most of the run. If that name sounds familiar, he later married Elizabeth Montgomery, and produced Bewitched. People love the shows where they go to Hollywood. That was season four. And uh, like I said, Desi Lu also owned the corner of the Paramount studio, which was Melrose and Gower. Now, it's 1982, and I'm co-producing Cheers. And our editing... At the time, it was all done on film, and so there was a reason where David Isaacs and I had to go up to editing to watch a scene. And the uh, editing building, it was near that corner. And we walked up, it was on the second floor, and we go up a staircase, and then we go up another staircase, and when we get to the landing there is a big window and we're clomping up those stairs and we get to the top and both of us just stop and are like oh holy shit what we realize is we are looking at the backdrop of lucy's hotel room in the hollywood episodes that's where they took the picture that they used as the backdrop. And that was, like, totally freaky. Again, this is 1982, so I wonder exactly how much that still looks the same, but it pretty much did in 1982. That season, they did 30 episodes a year, and uh, the famous one with William Holden, that was the very first episode when they went to Hollywood. It actually kind of 
uh, lopped over into the next season. They did, I think, five episodes still in Hollywood. And at that point, uh, James V. Kern became the director. But Bill Asher came back for the last season when they moved to Connecticut. And later in season five, they go to Europe. Uh, episode 23 of season five is the one where Lucy stomps on the grapes and gets in the fight with that woman who did not realize that it was a comedy bit and uh, and she was really flailing. I want to mention the famous uh, candy conveyor belt scene because it's absolutely brilliant and it's absolutely iconic what you might not know about it is it's a direct lift from a scene in the movie back in the silent days, Modern Times by Chaplin. If you go back and watch that movie, there is essentially the exact same scene. Now, here's something that is not well known at all. At least I rarely see this talked about. As successful as I Love Lucy was... The show almost imploded and was almost taken off the air in 1952. That was the year when it had like the 67 share rating. It's because Lucy was almost blacklisted. Now, this was the era of blacklisting and McCarthyism and everyone was a communist and uh, just a, a horrible, horrible time in our country's history. And Lucy's grandfather was a lifelong socialist. And Lucy had to testify twice and sign an affidavit stating that she had no ties to the Communist Party. She wanted to keep it on the down low, but at the time there was a radio commentator named Walter Winchell who was just a dick. And Walter Winchell made it public. Well, it actually turned out to be a good thing because her fans stood by her, as did her sponsor. And even FBI director Herbert Hoover supported her. And eventually she was cleared of all of the charges. And believe me, the popularity of the show was a big, big factor. And she acknowledged it. She said, you know, I'm very lucky. If this had happened a few years before, it would have just destroyed her career. Anyway, she gave a press conference in 1953, at which time Desi said the only thing read about Lucy is her hair, and that's not real either. So those are some facts about I Love Lucy. It continues to this day. And it's interesting, when shows go into syndication, oftentimes they'll start out with pretty high ratings. And after a couple of years, it goes down. And then eventually it just kind of plateaus at a, a fairly low level. I Love Lucy, the syndication ratings were very high. They remained high, they plateaued high, and they are high to this day. And it's amazing to think that a show that is 70 years old, that is in black and white, when kids today won't watch anything in black and white, but still, people of all ages, all generations discover and love I Love Lucy. So uh, there you go. 
Next week, we'll talk about Camp Runamuck. No. Uh, thank you so much. I know this is kind of a long episode, but it's episode 250, so why not? Our thanks, as always, to uh, Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. Again, uh, I'd love to know who you are and why you listen and where you're listening from. Uh, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. That's Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood, and Levine. Back next week with more right here on Hollywood and Levine. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 